Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for DebtWire Municipals. Joining me today are the deputy editor, Seth Brumby, our assistant editor, Mary Ellen Ty, and our head of municipal research, Greg Clark. So before we get started, there's one thing I need to talk about. I feel like I've been remiss in not giving proper acknowledgement to the man that makes this happen every week. Our product, our product, excuse me, our podcast producer, Andrew Cosentino. Yeah. You know, he's the man behind the scenes. Yeah, you need a little applause, man. <laughs> for, for doing, you, you guys never hear him, but he, he's here working he's hard. Here, he's here every week and he's uh, a part of every podcast. Yes, so that was very important to get to first, but we got a lot to ground to cover. I'm very excited because I'm usually not here in the city with my colleagues, so we're all face-to-face, and looks like there's some of the same issues that we have, and one of them is starting off with Puerto Rico. Seth, there was a court hearing that was going on. Yes, there was a court hearing earlier this week in Massachusetts. Actually, this is related to kind of some scheduling matters before Magistrate Judge Dean. Really long story short, the Unsecured Creditors Committee and the Financial Oversight and Management Board must agree to the scope for what I'll call the debt examiner. And Judge Dean would like an update from them by the 12th of September. Whether or not they can resolve their differences is another matter. The sticking point I think really just has to do with, at this point, uh, credibility. Uh, The oversight board has a few members that were once members of or leading organizations that underwrote the debt into which the UCC would like to conduct an investigation. And there were some fireworks in court on Tuesday where the UCC was essentially trying to tell Judge Dean that they really want to be able to have their own investigation And exhibit number one was the fact that the oversight board never even proposed an investigation until the UCC started filing papers with the court. So we will see what happens on September 12th, whether or not they can settle their differences. Right now, the UCC specifically wants to look at the Government Development Bank and Banco Popular and Banco uh, Santander with regard to the debt issuance, I believe, going back to 2006. And this... Seth, that was a question I had for you in terms of what's the the time range that we that we're looking at because i think that'll be key in terms of like who gets blamed for this or not in terms of how far they want to go back i mean because you think about bonds right they're 20 30 year issuances so in theory you could go back to 1980 and it might be relevant or it might not but what are they what are they thinking you know i think that's you'll probably see that defined when they finally come up with a scope for the debt examiner 2006 is an important year. This was actually the end of the 10-year expiration in which uh, Puerto Rico lost some of its uh, federal tax incentives for some of its manufacturing business. So following that, you could argue that that began the 10-year decline in their economy. Uh, During that time, they had to issue uh, a lot of debt to keep operations going to try and keep their economy afloat. And significantly in that period of time, they issued $17 billion in debt backed by uh, sales and use tax. And that debt is commonly called the Puerto Rico, excuse me, it's commonly called COFINA, but it's issued by the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation. So long story short, they're looking at debt pretty much issued during the long decline of Puerto Rico's economy and whether or not that debt was in excess of a constitutional limit, whether or not its uh, proceeds were used appropriately. You're not allowed to use deficit financing in Puerto Rico. That's another interesting question because, Marianne, I remember this was a couple years ago. 
Um, you had done an exercise looking at what the debt was issued for. And I couldn't even understand, like you had wrote, it was like a, a maze in terms of one agency issuing debt to pay off for another agency's debt. And it, it just made you wonder like, well, at some point this is gonna come back and be a problem. Like they weren't issuing debt to, for projects, they were issuing debt to pay off existing obligations of another agency within the Commonwealth. Yeah, my favorite one from that particular project was just the GDB HTA structure. The high, Government the Development Bank, for those, yeah. And the uh, Highway and Transportation Authority that, you know, the HTA would be issuing debt to pay back a loan from the GDB that then the GDB would, like, loan out to PRASA or someone like that. That's why we've often talked about the Government Development Bank as being sort of at the center of a spider web that a lot of things tend to go through there. And that's why a lot of people are maybe surprised or intrigued that the Government Development Bank is where we've seen the first Title VI. And Title VI refers to a consensual restructuring that right now actually, uh, there's some good news actually for the Government Development Bank and the consensual restructuring support agreement that they have with their creditors. I think they only need about 500 million in creditors to come on board to reach a critical threshold to approve the restructuring support agreement. That spells bad news for the municipalities that are trying to block the restructuring support agreement, their argument being that the income from the GDB that will go towards paying the restructured debt is essentially paid for by the municipalities that have not yet gotten any debt relief under the current restructuring. We'll see how they do. They have some of their own ideas in their works for how they can make up for the loss in funding uh, as a result of the Commonwealth's restructuring, one of which is actually issuing some of their own debt backed by property taxes. We'll see how all this goes. There's lots of moving parts there. So, um, But that was that's really what happened in court this week, and it's all interconnected. Um, next week, actually, there's another hearing, this one involving uh, the employee's retirement system litigation against the hedge fund or a group of hedge funds. Uh, Altair, Oak Tree, and then UBS, they're holders of the Employee Retirement System's uh, 2008 pension obligation bonds, of which they're about $3 billion outstanding. And the dispute really is over the uh, perfection of the collateral for bondholders. In other words, the bondholders say that they have a lien on employer contributions to the Employee Retirement System. Uh, ERS and the Financial Oversight Board is basically saying, no, you don't. Um, you're, you, you don't deserve um, to foreclose on your collateral. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, it certainly did ignite some trading in ERS bonds this week. About $42 million changed hands. Um, they're down about 2% week over week and 6% year over year. doesn't look like the market is too optimistic in their arguments, but we'll see how that goes. And there was some other developments, right, with the tobacco in terms of related to Puerto Rico? You know, we're still looking into that. Children's Trust is the securitization of the uh, tobacco master settlement agreement payments. So in 1998, as everybody knows, there's this large settlement with the major uh, tobacco manufacturers that resulted in annual payments pretty much in perpetuity for all the states that had you know, were suing them over the costs that smoking uh, presents to the health care of, of various you know, people that smoke. So uh, Children's Trust basically securitized those payments. In other words, they issued some bonds that are backed by those annual payments from tobacco companies. And this week, uh, there were two trades 
and there was 140 million that traded hands, uh, according to some of our research. Not so much of a huge difference in trading price, so we're trying to find out what's going on there. What's interesting about Children's Trust is that it is a covered entity over the Oversight Board, which means if the Oversight Board wanted to restructure Children's Trust and maybe capture some of those tobacco revenues for the island or the Commonwealth restructuring, maybe they could do that. But we haven't seen any fiscal economic growth plan. We haven't heard any news otherwise so far about whether or not Children's Trust might have to actually give up its tobacco revenue. That'd be really hard to do. But we'll see with that. That's that's one indicator of maybe where the news cycle is going. Yeah. Let's switch gears here, Marion, and go to uh, the world of electric utilities, specifically Santee Cooper, or what's known as Santee Cooper. Thanks, Paul. This week we saw a lot of trading in Santee Cooper bonds. Again, we do tracking of secondary market trading, and this was the first time that it's been on our weekly list of the top trades. The big news this week is that Santee Cooper, they made a bunch of projections when they started the nuclear power plants at Westinghouse that we've talked about so frequently that assumed a lot more growth requirements, basically that there would be a lot more demand for electricity than we've seen. It's basically been level. So there's a lawsuit that was brought. It's a class action. It's going to be in Horry County. And it alleges that the utility has raised rates inappropriately this is tied to a separate power plant than Westinghouse. It's a coal-fired plant that was also not completed as the demand for electricity didn't grow as was anticipated. So they have a number of abandoned projects, I guess, because they realize that the customers just aren't there? Yeah, it's not also that the customers aren't there, but also that customers are using less power. Our utilities, are, our appliances are a lot more efficient than they used to be, things like that. Interesting kind of canary in the coal mine for uh, the rest of the, I guess, the power producers in the country. I mean, I'm sure there'll be growth and demand elsewhere, but maybe not for a, a brand new nuclear power plant. Um, what I find interesting about this is that, uh, you know, Santee Cooper, as you reported, Mary Ellen, decided not to raise rates this year for ratepayers, knowing that those rates might go towards paying back $4 billion in debt that Santee Cooper issued to pay for the yet unfinished nuclear power plants. So maybe they're not going to make the same mistake twice of raising rates on ratepayers for non-existent plants. Yeah, I can't imagine I would just sit idly by as my utility starts and abandons projects. Yeah, yeah, people want to know where that money's going towards. So I, I guess they could let things deteriorate to some point to where the bond covenants would still be honored, but they, they would still be able to sit on rates for a while. Because they, they have to, if, if they do violate bond covenants, then bondholders will be in court. For instance, if they, rate, if they violate the rate covenant, which requires them to generate a certain level of net revenues in order to pay off all their debt, then uh, everybody expects them to do that, but they probably have some margin. I don't, I don't recall what their coverage is right now, but there's probably some margin there that they could allow that ratio to go down. A couple of traders I talked to said that was a pretty likely scenario, that coverage would go down closer to the bond covenant required amount just because the optics are so bad yeah. right now. And Which means the ratings might go down too, but... They're probably they may have to live with that. And just for our listeners, so it's clear, colloquially it's known as Santee Cooper, but the official name is the South Carolina Public Service Authority. Uh, just in case you were looking up information about it. But Marianne, there was also some disclosure news going on 
with Beaumont, California and the SEC. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, the SEC this week announced that they were taking actions against Beaumont for continuing disclosure obligations in five different bond offerings between 2003 and 2013. It's about um, 260 million of bond offerings. The disclosure was modified to make the bonds appear more attractive, and the SEC says that investors were misled about the likelihood the district would comply with its continuing disclosure obligations in the future. And in some pretty strong language, in its announcement, the SEC said that they would have been more lenient if the agency had self-reported during the municipality's continuing disclosure initiative. Really hadn't been following it that closely. And, but I had gone to an event a couple of months ago in Boston where there was a member of the SEC, um, the enforcement chief. Leanne Gaunt, is that her name? Yes, and she had made it very clear that they were about to step up their activity and that the time for forget the term that she used, but it was like kind of like the soft enforcement period was over. And now we were going to this period where you were going to start to see things like this, where they were going to come out and be pretty aggressive in their actions with issuers that hadn't taken advantage of the self-reporting period. So there might be a lot more of these. This is the first one I've heard of, um, and it's probably likely that there's more of these to come. Yeah, that's where bad... I guess municipal management really does start to hurt your taxpayers because let's suppose the SEC really does start to come down on these issuers and start levying some pretty significant fines. Where do they get the money from to pay these fines other than the people that essentially elected or appointed them to their position? So that's it's one more reason maybe to get more involved uh, in your you know, civic life and, you know, go to these, you know, board meetings and try and really, you know, find out if, you know. And these are crimes of from years ago yeah. that people are going to have to pay for going forward. So, um, yeah. People need, people need to know more about the bond market. That's why we're here. There you go. <laughs> Tell your friends about the Muni Lowdown. Right, right, and start listening. But there's more, uh, Marianne, with uh, charter schools as well, right? Yeah, thanks, Paul. There were a couple interesting charter school news items to come out last week, or this week. Hillcrest Charter School in Arizona what settled with their bondholders, they're going to get 24 to 64 cents on the dollar, depending on how two school sales go. That's interesting because the bonds have been trading for about 15 cents on the dollar on uh, the electronic municipal market access uh, platform. And then the other charter school was the Michigan Technical Academy. It's in Detroit. They lost their charter earlier this summer and that triggered an event of default for bondholders. Then, because they've triggered this event of default, lost their charter, the state, Michigan's Treasury, is required to send most of their state school aid fund to the bank in order for it to go to bondholders rather than sending it to the school. Obviously, the school wants to do things like pay teachers, so it'll be interesting to see where that ends up happening the school has asked for a receiver to be appointed. Interesting. See how uh, that continues to develop. But moving on, Greg, uh, there's a couple issues we want to close out on. One is with the state of New Mexico. I find this one fascinating, this whole thing with uh, advanced refunded bonds. And maybe you could explain advanced refundings very briefly for the sure. audience I'll, and then kind of go into I'll this. I'll do my best. 
Just about a month ago, New Mexico sold general obligation bonds of about $300 million. Half of the money they used for new capital projects and half they used to refinance bonds that were sold in 2013 and 2015. Now, when you refinance, you're basically paying off your old bonds. There's two ways to do that. One is to pay off the old bonds immediately with money derived from issuing the new bonds. And the second way to pay off the old bonds is to pay them off later, to wait until later and not do it now. When you do it later, you have to set up an escrow fund with a third party. The escrow agent then holds on to the bond proceeds until the old bonds mature, then they pay them back as, as the bonds mature. Either way you do this, you have to be sure that the old bonds can be paid off when you think they can be paid off. Basically what we're talking about here is a lot of our listeners will, will understand is, is callable bonds. In any event, within the last few days, the state realized the bonds that they thought they could call, they cannot call. The bonds that are in question are the Series 2015 General Obligation Bonds. What's one, of th one of the many things that, that's interesting about this bond issue is that the final official statement, which is supposed to contain the final, final terms for the bonds, says the 2015 bonds that mature on or after March 1st of 2021 can be called on any date after March 1st of 2020. But the final official statement was amended or stickered is the old term to say that the final official statement is wrong and that the bonds are not subject to call, period. Amending a, a final official statement in this way is very unusual. Typically, when you convert the preliminary official statement to the final official statement, you make all the changes you need to make to ensure that the final document represents everything about the bonds that needs to be said. The, one of the problems here is that there's a fair amount of math involved when you issue refunding bonds. You don't want to issue more or fewer bonds than you need to, if only to conform to federal tax regulations, which is a whole other story that I won't get into but right Greg, now. Greg, I got a question. Is it really math? I mean, I, I, I got one question for you, right? So if I understand you correctly, if you can't call the bonds, right, you can't do this transaction. Right. So right, what, but they were they were mistaken. They thought they could call them, but they can't. But if you can't call the bonds, you can't do the so. Well, they right. They shouldn't. They should not have I mean, sold the 2017 bonds, assuming that they could call the. Isn't there a whole analysis that's done where you do an analysis and there's sheets and but yep. the, the key component is yeah. that you have to be able to call the bonds in order to execute this transaction. Your uh, your experts on the deal, there's lawyers involved, there's bankers, there's financial. I hope whoever worked on this deal made a lot of money because yeah. whoever gets held responsible is not going to get work anytime soon. My, here's, here's my guess as to what happened. They saw the final official statement without the amendment and therefore thought that the 2015 bonds were callable when in reality they weren't. They but never, don't they have like meetings? It's not like they have. Yeah, I'm just. It's not like they have one meeting and they say, "Oh yeah, we're gonna do this transaction," and then that nobody realized somebody, that you couldn't somebody, call the bonds. Somebody messed up, and the state has egg on its face because the board that approved the bond issue consists of the governor and some other. I'm not sure if they're appointed or elected statewide officials and a bunch of public members, and the bonds were the 2017 bonds were approved by a unanimous vote of 
and also at, nice. the, at the meeting that they had, the, the, the minutes for anyone who's really interested in this, you can go to the New Mexico Board of Finance and, and look at the minutes for June 20th, I think it is. And you can see who was there and all the professionals that presented Any as well. Any sense of how much it's going to cost for them to fix this problem? Possibly in the tens of millions of dollars. Because if you can't call the bonds, you have to pay them off over time. What did you just say? If you time. can't call the bonds. Yes. That's which you said. couldn't do here. <laughs> Okay. That's right. I'm a little stuck on this point. I know, I know. There's a couple of things that come up to me. When, when you call a bond that's not in its callable period, typically you have to pay some kind of penalty for that, whether it's some like uh, discount penalty, like treasuries plus right. 50 basis points. Or I, I'm wondering if maybe that's what the tens of millions of dollars is. The other thing, too, is what do bondholders think of all of this? I mean, have any have, has the trustee stepped up to say, I'm sorry, New Mexico, you can't do this. Has a bondholder even called New Mexico and say, I'm supposed to have this bond for the next five or ten years. I'm not giving it that back to you. That is the weird part about this, that you would think that a bondholder would have gotten wind of this and said, hey, um, everybody, well, this is not. If they're listening today, they'll know about it now. <laughs> this, this is not possible. This, the, I did a search for this. We received one article that uh, was an article from the Santa Fe New Mexican. See, there we go. And that's where the story was about the governor, Susana Martinez, calling an emergency meeting of the State Board of Finance, which has, again, approved the bond issue to try to fix this problem. And I did a search before we, did, uh, before we came in here today, and so far they're the only media outlet to have uh, reported on this. So... Lucky for her, it's not an election year. Cause, uh, well, I'm sure it'll come up Maybe it is when and if there. she does run for re-election. Because this is not, this is a, a problem. I've, I've never seen this kind of thing happen before. Which yeah. doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I've just never seen it before. Well, we'll continue to follow that one. I'm sure we'll be doing more reporting and discussing on New Mexico. But finally, an old favorite, state of Illinois. Illinois. Weren't they having a big uh, vote this week? They were going to override the the governor's. uh, That that was the puffed chest version of events. It was a big letdown. Yeah. So earlier in the week, the uh, Speaker of the Illinois House, Mr. Madigan, canceled or maybe postponed is a better word, the Wednesday vote that was going to uh, result in an override, expected to result in an override of the governor's veto. The two sides are still negotiating. The governor's position, of course, is he is, in general, this is a vast oversimplification, in general, against more state aid for the Chicago schools, including being against more state aid for pensions per se. And the rest of the legislature, a lot of the rest of the legislature, Democrats anyway, I guess, uh, are in favor of more aid for Chicago. So one of the ideas is to allow Chicago to levy taxes above the state-imposed ceiling, which would, of course, allow them to generate more money for general purposes and and or pensions. There's a lot of other ideas. I don't think anyone can say yet what, what the final picture is going to look like and or whether the governor will approve the legislation once it's been approved. But... It's hard to say. It's hard to see how they can go on much longer this way. And and again, uh, we talked about this in last week's community lowdown. And it's just kind of, it's it's one of these things that took me a little bit by surprise with all the hubbub, you know, two months ago about the state. 
finally adopting a budget after two, three years. And you figure things like this are resolved. But again, what happened here was that the appropriation for K-12 education was finalized, but the formula by which the, those monies are distributed was not finalized. And that's so it really wasn't finalized. Right. If you don't yeah, if you deal with the funding. If you haven't and, agreed on how to spend it, it's not, really, it's not really done. You know, the really sad thing about this is I think that when you've been fighting for two or three years, you just forget how to not fight. You know, you can, you can fight or you can cooperate. And if all you're used to doing is just, you know, arguing and yelling at each other, you forget what it means to sit there and actually try and settle some differences. Um, Particularly I, if I, the speaker is a Democrat, Mike Madigan, and the governor is a Republican, Bruce Rauner. I hesitate to say this, but the Itchy and Scratchy show just came into mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I think on that note... <laughs> We'll bring it to a close. Thank you for listening to another listen of, another edition, excuse me, of the Muni Lowdown, and we'll talk to you next week. Now I have that theme song in my head. <laughs> they fight. They fight. They fight. They fight. They fight. They fight. They fight.